Welcome to Rock Band's podcast, where we talk about rock and roll history, band by band. I'm your host, Jonathan Maliberti, and before we get into it, don't forget to subscribe to Rock Band's podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening. Follow us on Instagram at Rock Band's Podcast, and write a review if you enjoy the show. For our first season, we're going to talk about the Beatles. Now, in my mind, the Beatles is the perfect place to start the history of rock and roll. After all, we all know John, Paul, George, and Ringo. John Lennon on rhythm guitar and lead vocals, Paul McCartney on bass guitar and lead vocals, George Harrison on lead guitar and backup vocals, and Ringo Starr holding the beat on drums. The Beatles are widely considered to be the most important rock and roll band in history, and for good reason. First off, this is probably the most popular band ever. The Beatles have sold over a billion records worldwide and have more number one singles than any musical artist in history. They push the limits of pop music with songs like I Want to Hold Your Hand, Yesterday, A Day in the Life, and Here Comes the Sun. The list of songs goes on and on and on. Amazingly, almost 60 years later, the Beatles' music still holds up. Young people like me keep discovering the band. I'm 23, and I discovered the Beatles when I was in high school. Now, I'm not exactly part of the demographic you'd expect to be listening to music that came out before my parents were even born. But for some reason, millions of people my age still do. Now, another reason I'm starting with the Beatles is because they have an impact that goes further than music itself. This band completely altered the landscape of pop music, pop culture, and fame. Nowadays, we have like rock and roll cliches. Long hair, screaming fans, artsy album covers. We know about the egos, the drugs, the breakups, the solo careers. We all know and love those stories, and they started with the Beatles. An entire industry around pop culture was created in the wake of the Beatles' rise. Magazines like Rolling Stone and Cream started doing rock journalism, critiquing albums, and for the first time, people really cared what young people thought. People were interested in what young people were interested in. That's a huge shift in our culture, and that lives on to this day. We're also obsessed with celebrities in large part because we were obsessed with the Beatles. I mean, there is an entire tabloid press that exists to find out the dirty little secrets of celebrities, what they're wearing, who they're sleeping with, what drugs they're taking. I mean, obviously not every cultural change since 1964 is directly related to the Beatles, but our culture never quite got over that shock to the system way back when the Beatles first hit the airwaves. Now, It's not like these four guys from Liverpool set out with this goal in mind. They couldn't have. No musicians were as massive as the Beatles were before the Beatles. That level of superstardom simply didn't exist. That's why I'm starting Rock Band's podcast with the Beatles, because the Beatles really matter. From Please Please Me to Sgt. Pepper, from Liverpool to India, from Marijuana to LSD, from Patty Boyd to Yoko Ono, I'm going to tell you all the story of the Beatles. Like I said, we all know John, Paul, George, and Ringo, but that wasn't the official lineup of the band until 1962, six years after John Lennon started a skiffle band, which would gradually evolve into the Beatles. 
That's where we're going to begin this story, with John Lennon's turbulent early life and the band he started when he was a teenager. Lennon was born on October 9, 1940, in Liverpool, England. Like many rock stars of his generation, he was born during World War II, and his native city of Liverpool was bombed more or less nightly by the Nazis. The war wasn't the only problem in Lennon's life, though. Lennon's mother, Julia Stanley, was living with her parents when John was born, and his father, Alfred Lennon, was absent from his life. Alfred was a merchant seaman who would spend months at a time at sea, and while he was pretty much never around for the first few years of John's life, he did regularly send checks to his wife and his newborn son. However, the checks stopped coming in 43 or 44, and nobody heard from Alfred for months. Julia just assumed that Alfred had abandoned the family, which wouldn't have been that surprising given the circumstances, because the marriage between them was all but over. Julia was only like 29 at the time, so she was going out dancing and dating. Alfred eventually made his way back to England, claiming that he had been imprisoned in North Africa, but it was too late. Julia was pregnant with another child and living with another man. Alfred tried to take John with him to New Zealand, allegedly even trying to kidnap him, but his plan failed. And in the end, Alfred made John pick between him and his mother, Julia. John chose Julia, and that's the last time that John had any contact with his father until after Beatlemania. Of course, this isn't the most traditional way to bring up a child, which is why Julia's sister, John's aunt Mimi, didn't approve of the way John was being raised. Wanting to give John a proper upbringing, where John stayed out of trouble and did well in school, Aunt Mimi called social services and got custody of the five-year-old John Lennon. This may have seemed cruel, but it may well have been the best decision for John at the time. Julia's new boyfriend was a drinker and wasn't really willing to raise another man's child. Aunt Mimi was also very serious about providing John with a good upbringing. Mimi had a reputation for being a bit strict and snobby, but she really loved John and cared about him a lot. John even said in one of his final interviews in 1980, quote, This image of me being an orphan is garbage, because I was very well protected by my auntie and uncle, and they looked after me very well, thanks. Unquote. If Mimi was the responsible caretaker, making sure John did well in school, wore his glasses, and acted like a proper upper-class English boy, her husband, George Smith, was more fun-loving. Uncle George acted like a father figure to John, and the two loved spending time together. He would read to John and bring him on adventures around Liverpool, and was often more reasonable and understanding than Aunt Mimi about discipline. Aunt Mimi even said of the close relationship between Uncle George and John, quote, John loved his Uncle George. I felt quite left out of that. They'd go off together, just leaving me a bar of chocolate and a note saying, have a happy day, unquote. Tragedy struck John Lennon's life, though, when his Uncle George suddenly dropped dead of a liver hemorrhage in the spring of 1955. John was just 14 years old. He was devastated by the loss of his Uncle George. While all of this was happening, John still remained very close with his mother, Julia. Julia was very caring for John and her sister Mimi when they were grieving the death of George. Generally, Julia acted as a positive factor in John's life. In fact, for all of John's life to this point, a pretty healthy balance had been found between being raised by Mimi and George and having a good relationship with his mother. Julia just lived a few miles away, and they'd often visit each other. It's actually John's relationship with Julia that caused him to take an interest in music in the first place. When John would visit Julia for dinner or a cup of tea, she started to show him records by Elvis Presley. She even taught him some chords on the piano and the banjo, and by 1956, John's interest in music became an obsession, 
With the permission of his Aunt Mimi, he was given his first ever guitar. This is where the story of John Lennon and music really begins. From here on, he would listen to any record he could get his hands on, which in Liverpool in the 1950s was not exactly an easy thing to do. He listened to rock and roll, rockabilly, jazz, and blues, and he had some heroes like Elvis Presley, Buddy Holly, Fats Domino, Bill Haley and the Rockets, Lonnie Donegan, and a bunch of others. John was also deeply committed to learning guitar, and although he was often playing an out-of-tune guitar, or he didn't have all six strings on the instrument, he didn't stop trying. John's musical awakening was happening at the right time. It was the peak of England's skiffle craze. The skiffle craze was a period where teenage boys would grab anything, harmonicas, guitars, banjos, pots and pans, washboards, and they would form bands called skiffle groups. Lennon was no different, and in the fall of 1956, John Lennon got a few of his school friends together and they formed a band called the Quarrymen. This is the band that would eventually become the Beatles, but for now, John Lennon was the only Beatles member. As the leader of the group, John made sure they played a mix of skiffle and rock and roll, and he decided who was in and out of the band. By the summer of 1957, the Quarrymen could play a solid handful of songs. They managed to get themselves a gig at the St. Peter's Church in Woolton, England. They were having a small summer fair in the churchyard, and it was here at this gig where John Lennon would meet someone that would change his life forever. Paul McCartney showed up at the Quarrymen's gig to see John Lennon and the band perform. Paul had a friend, Ivan, who also knew John and insisted that Paul come see John play. When Paul got to the fair, the band was playing a popular doo-wop song called Come Go With Me but John was singing all the wrong words. Paul was still impressed with what he saw. John was improvising the lyrics from blues records, and along with his Elvis-style hairdo, Lennon had an obvious stage presence. After the show, Ivan introduced them. Of the first encounter, Paul later joked that he was, quote, surprised how drunk and horrible John was, unquote. The two quickly got to playing, and Paul impressed John with a perfect rendition of Eddie Cochran's 20 Flight Rock. He even knew all the words. John asked him to join the group, and Paul, who was hesitant at first, officially agreed to become a member of the Quarrymen the next day. Now, evident here, even from the first encounter, is a considerable personality difference between John and Paul. This is somewhat of a theme throughout the history of the band, and has caused conflict between the two. However, the connection that John and Paul made was real and deep, and within just a few weeks of being bandmates, John and Paul became creative partners, and some of the first Lennon-McCartney tunes were written. In addition to songwriting, Paul brought with him a level of skill that was badly needed in the quarrymen. Paul came from a musical family, and he had learned to play a bit of trumpet. He never really took to it, so he taught himself how to play guitar. At this point, he was the most advanced guitar player in the group, and was able to help the band learn more complicated rock and roll songs by artists like Buddy Holly and the Everly Brothers. Paul also influenced the band to move away from skiffle and towards the much cooler genre of rock and roll. Something deeper connected John and Paul, though. Paul grew up in a happy, working-class home. His father, Jim, was a professional trumpet player, and his mother, Mary, was a nurse. Sadly, Paul's mother died of cancer when Paul was just 14 years old. Paul has since said that music was how he was able to overcome the great loss that he felt when his mom died, and meeting John and writing songs with him was very much part of that. John, too, had a difficult upbringing, as we've talked about. While he loved his mother, he still had the sense that she'd rejected him and chosen another life instead of him. In 1970, on his first solo album, Post Beatles, John wrote a song about Julia entitled Mother. 
He said in the song, quote, Mother, you had me, but I never had you. I wanted you, you didn't want me, unquote. At this point in John's life, though, he was very close with his mother, Julia. Julia was ecstatic that John and his friends were getting into music and even came to see the Quarrymen play. John would also frequently visit Julia to talk about the ups and downs in his life and vent about Mimi's objections to his interest in music. From time to time, John brought Paul along to visit with Julia, of which Paul said, quote, John and I were both in love with his mom. We'd go and visit her and she'd be very nice, but when we left, there was always a tinge of sadness about John, unquote. The sadness in John would only get worse when Julia died suddenly in the summer of 1958. Julia was walking back to her house after having a visit with Aunt Mimi when she was fatally struck by a car. John, just 17 at the time, couldn't bear the news and refused to look at his mother's body in the hospital. He cried in Mimi's arms the entire funeral. The death of Julia Lennon deeply affected John. In the following years, he became more rebellious, violent, and drank heavily. It also further connected him to Paul, who had also lost his mother. While neither of them were consciously doing it at the time, they both acknowledged that lyrics of their songs could have been influenced by the deaths of their mothers. A lot of their early work dealt with topics of loss and being left or betrayed by a girl. Songs like Where's My Little Girl and I Call Your Name. While the Lennon-McCartney songwriting duo had been born, there was still something missing in the Quarrymen. In this period, in the late 1950s, the band had a kind of revolving door policy around musicians. They took in who they needed and they kicked out who they didn't. They didn't have a real drummer or bass player, just guitar players, and they were pretty limited guitar players at that. Paul was the most advanced, but he still couldn't play guitar solos, and he got nervous and messed up the few licks that he could play when it came time to do it on stage. It was decided that the Quarrymen needed to up their game with a lead guitar player, but this was not as easy of a task as it seemed. Rock and roll records were rare enough, so naturally so were guitar players who learned guitar licks off of the record. Paul McCartney, however, did have a friend who really impressed him, and he thought he would be a good addition to the group. His friend's name was George Harrison. Paul and George met on the number 86 bus on their way to school a few years earlier. They struck up a friendship over their shared love of music and began to play together. George had been playing longer than Paul, which impressed Paul, and Paul was a year older than George, which impressed George. George began playing guitar when he was just 13, and he had kind of a meticulous side to him. He would spend hours practicing trying to play a part exactly like the record, and he learned chords and scales. Despite George's proficiency on the guitar, he had an insecure side to him as well. He never thought he was any good, and he was younger than pretty much everyone on the skiffle scene. This extended to his friendship with Paul, who once said of their relationship, quote, I tended to talk down to him because he was a year younger. I know now that was a failing I had throughout the Beatle years. If you've known a guy when he's 13 and you're 14, it's hard to think of him as grown up, unquote. This dynamic between Paul and George and the rest of the Beatles is something I will keep coming back to, as it remains important throughout the story of the Beatles. For now, though, Paul and George were just good mates. Despite his age, George was relatively advanced on the guitar, and Paul was trying to convince John to let him try out for the Quarrymen. The band needed a lead guitar player, and George was available. John was hesitant, but he did agree to meet George. That first meeting between John, Paul, and George is one of those Beatle legends that everyone has heard. The group was on top of a double-decker bus in Liverpool, and George Harrison got out his guitar and wowed everyone with a perfect version of Raunchy, a riff that everyone wanted to play but couldn't quite figure out. John was no doubt impressed by George, but he took a hard pass on letting him join the group. 
John was 17, and he did not want a kid in his band. He was pretty cognizant of the band's image, and George, who just turned 15 that month, looked younger than his age. John said of the meeting with George, quote, it was too much. George was just too young. He seemed like a kid, unquote. George, on the other hand, was enamored by all these cool older musicians, especially John. He would often show up at Aunt Mimi's house asking if John wanted to hang out. Apparently, he one time followed John and his new girlfriend Cynthia on one of their dates. George was also a bit awkward and he lacked a filter. After a few months of George hanging around, though, John realized he was the best option for the band, and he relented and let him in. George was the best guitar player out of all of them, and his parents let the band practice in their front room. He also taught John how to tune his guitar and taught him a bunch of guitar chords, where John was playing banjo chord. George joining the band gave them an edge musically. Around this time, though, they entered a period of stagnation. The group's rehearsals were less consistent, and the gigs were even less frequent. A lot of this could be attributed to the death of Julia Lennon. John was, after all, grieving a major loss, and he was also preoccupied with his new girlfriend, Cynthia. John met Cynthia Lennon in 1958 at art school. He was enamored by the beautiful blonde Cynthia and ended his current relationship to be with her. She, too, was in a relationship at the time, and she ended that, and the two started dating in the fall of 1958. John could be incredibly possessive of Cynthia, and even violent. He once slapped Cynthia across the face so hard she hit her head against the wall after he saw her dancing with another art school student. This caused Cynthia to end the relationship. John and Cynthia were broken up for about three months, and it was only after John begged for her forgiveness that Cynthia resumed her relationship with Lennon. This kind of behavior, though not in any way justifiable, was probably caused by Lennon's grief over his mother. Lennon later said of the incident, quote, I was in a sort of blind rage for two years. I was either drunk or fighting. It had been the same with other girlfriends I'd had. There was something the matter with me." Unquote. Around this time, John also met Stu Stutcliffe, with whom he became very good friends. Though Stu didn't play an instrument, John convinced him to join the band as a bass player. John and Stu also changed the name of the band. For a few months, they went by Johnny and the Moondogs, then they changed to some version of the Silver Beatles. The two liked this name because it was kind of like Buddy Holly's band, The Crickets. It also had a double meaning, the word beat in it. With a new bass player and a new name, the Beatles were now ready to get more gigs around Liverpool. The band still didn't have a drummer, but this was normal back then. You would either drum with people who were available, or you just wouldn't use a drummer that gig. In early 1960, after making some more connections on the nightclub scene, they met Alan Williams. He owned a few clubs in Liverpool. Alan was a bit of a hustler, but he took a liking to the group. He managed to secure them a gig to be the backing band for an upcoming performer named Johnny Gentle. Johnny Gentle was touring England and Scotland, and he needed a band. The tour was short, but it was the first time any of the Beatles would work as professional musicians. George immediately quit his apprenticeship as an electrician, and along with the rest of the guys began practicing obsessively. The guys were so thrilled at the idea that they could be professional musicians. They went on to learn a lot from the Johnny Gentle tour, and their success gave them more credence in the eyes of Alan Williams, who was now booking them more and more. By the end of the summer in 1960, Williams had a really important opportunity for the band. This would change the course of the band's history. He offered them a three-month residency at a nightclub in Hamburg, Germany. The band was thrilled. This was a great opportunity, but they had an urgent problem. They didn't have a drummer. 
If they wanted to go to Hamburg in less than a week, they needed to find a new drummer, and that was hard enough to do for a gig, let alone a three-month residency. Paul did know of somebody named Pete Best. He had a band that was okay, and he was a fine drummer. He could keep time, and that was what the band was looking for. The band quickly reached out, and Pete agreed to go with them to Hamburg. Just like that, with a new lineup, John, Paul, George, Stu, and Pete, under the name The Beatles, went to Hamburg. John Lennon famously said of the Hamburg days, quote, I may have been born in Liverpool, but I grew up in Hamburg, unquote. It's true, the Hamburg period was truly formative for the band, mainly because it opened up their naive Liverpudlian eyes to the world of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Hamburg was notorious for its red light district called the Reeperbahn, a neighborhood chock full of brothels, strip clubs, sex shops, and bars. George later called Hamburg the naughtiest city in the world, which isn't quite what he told his parents at the time, who he had to lie to to even go, right before lying to the West German government about his age. He said he was 18, so he could get a work permit. The Beatles stayed in a small room in bunk beds behind a screen of a pornographic movie theater in the Reeperbahn. The shower was apparently so disgusting that the Beatles refused to use it and would go weeks without bathing. They weren't too upset by the lack of luxury because within hours of arriving in Hamburg, the Beatles were on stage at the Indra Club. The band's schedule was intense. They played seven days a week, 8 p.m. to 2 a.m. on weekdays, 7 p.m. to 3 a.m. on Saturdays, and 5 p.m. to 1.30 on Sundays. Now, keep in mind, the Beatles were a professional band in name only at this point. They were a drummerless skiffle outfit until a few months ago, and then they played barely a dozen shows with Johnny Gentle. They'd never even played a show with Pete Best yet. Their lack of experience was evident the first night in Hamburg. They were stiff as boards, had no stage presence, and were clearly nervous. They had to fill that five-hour slot by repeating the same 20 minutes of material all night long. The Beatles quickly realized that they had to get it together or lose their residency. The owner of the club would shout at them, Mach Schau, or Make Show in English, and after just a few gigs, they started to loosen up. They would dance, smoke, drink, and even eat on stage. John Lennon began to engage the audience by taunting them, and he took requests. They simply had to learn on the fly. George said of the early gigs in Hamburg, quote, We didn't have a clue. We'd never really done any gigs. We'd played a few parties, but we'd never had a drummer longer than one night at a time. So we were very ropey, just young kids. When we arrived, we started playing eight hours a day. It was pretty intense, unquote. If the Beatles wanted to fill the time, they had to find more songs. Now, there weren't enough rock and roll songs in the charts at the time, and every other band had the same songs in their set list. So the Beatles started playing jazz, blues, German songs, movie songs, anything. The Beatles also started to put their own material into the sets, which really differentiated them from other groups. Now, musically, the Beatles really tightened up. They began to read each other on stage and improvise, and they learned how to dance and entertain the audience. After just a few months in Hamburg, they were building up a steady following, and they got further and further from any other band in Liverpool. The onstage dynamic between John and Paul also got really strong. They acted as dual frontmen, typically swapping vocals every other song. Side by side, since Paul was left-handed and John was right-handed, they looked like mirrors of each other. Stu and Pete were both pretty underwhelming musically, and George was a pretty submissive personality, so it was becoming clearer and clearer that John Lennon and Paul McCartney were the creative leaders in the band. 
they moved from the Indra Club to the Kaiser Keller, which was a definite promotion. The room was bigger, the PA was louder, and most importantly, they had another band on the bill, so they could take breaks. However, they had to play longer hours. Now playing all night and keeping up the necessary energy was not an easy task. Alcohol alone could make them sloppy and tired, so the Beatles began to use a drug called Preladin, or Prellies as they called it. Preladin was a diet pill that also worked as a pretty intense upper. The Beatles would take a mouthful of Prellies and wash it down with beer during the shows, and it would keep them energized throughout the show. It also made them pretty reckless. As the Beatles got better musically, they also got more popular on the Hamburg nightclub circuit. They were offered a better wage playing at the Top Tens Club, and they were going to take it. The owner of the Kaiser Keller caught wind of the house band's plan to abandon his club, and being the tough nightclub owner that he was, sought revenge. He reported George Harrison to the authorities for lying about his age, and George was promptly deported back to England. Paul McCartney and Pete Best responded by lighting a condom on fire at the Kaiser Keller in effort to prank the owner for what he did to George. The owner of the Kaiser Keller once again reported the Beatles to the authorities, and Best and McCartney were on their way back to England. With no band, John decided to pack it up and return to England as well. Stu Tutcliffe, having met and fallen in love with an attractive art student, Astrid Critcher, decided to stay in Hamburg. About a year after his departure from the Beatles, he died of a cerebral hemorrhage in Hamburg. This really devastated John, as he and Stu were particularly close. In 1961, however, the four Beatles found themselves back in Liverpool, without a bass player. John, still very much the leader at this point, refused to take up the bass, and George was too advanced a guitar player. After some arguing, it was decided that Paul would plug in the bass, albeit reluctantly. Now a four-piece, the Beatles were still completely unknown in their hometown. They were a much better band than they were earlier that year, so after just a few gigs, they had begun to make a name for themselves at home. They first played the Cavern Club in the winter of 1961, a Liverpool jazz club that has now become synonymous with the Beatles. As they got more steady work in Liverpool, they amassed a pretty sizable following. For the first time, they were kind of local celebrities, and girls in particular began to flock to see the Beatles. In 1961, the Beatles accepted a generous offer to return to Hamburg and finally play at the Top Ten Club. At the Top Ten, they were recruited to record some tracks for one of their contemporaries, Tony Sheridan. Billed on the album as the Beat Brothers, the band cut tracks for Sheridan like My Bonnie, Ain't She Sweet, and Cry for a Shadow. Some of the first Lennon-McCartney originals were recorded, but they weren't released at the time. After their residency at the Top Ten Club, the band returned to Liverpool in the fall of 61. By this time, their absence from the cavern was noticed, and they planned a welcome home Beatles show upon their return. To their surprise, the Beatles were greeted at the Cavern Club with over 4,000 fans. This was their first taste of Beatlemania. Their name also made it to the ears of a certain Brian Epstein, who owned a few record stores in Liverpool and wanted to start managing bands. Epstein was 27 when he met the band, and he wasn't really that interested in music, but he did see something attractive about the group. He knew pretty much right away he could sell them. The first formal meeting between the Beatles and Brian Epstein was in the early weeks of 1962. He was a little put off by their behavior, but the Beatles soon realized that Brian, who was really business savvy, could help their career, and they trusted him. After a few meetings between Brian and the band, he officially came on as their manager, and his impact was pretty much immediate. He got them more work, he got them on radio shows, and he even changed their looks. Brian got the Beatles to trade in their leather jackets and tough guy attitudes for suits, ties, and leather boots. He wanted them to look more serious and professional. 
he even got them to start bowing at the end of their performance, that signature beetle bow. Now, of course, you Beatles fans know that there is an element to this band that's missing, a really important element. And that element came in 1962, when Pete Best was fired and replaced by Ringo Starr. In Hamburg and in Liverpool, bands would often play at the same clubs, so there was a small community of musicians that developed. Rory Storm and the Hurricanes drummer Ringo Starr became particularly close with John, Paul, and George. Ringo Starr's name is actually Richard Starkey, and his family knew him as Richie. He's a Liverpool native who grew up in a working-class family. When he was a teenager, he picked up the drums and eventually joined Rory Storm's band, the Hurricanes. By the time the Beatles and Ringo had met, he was widely considered to be one of the best drummers around. Now, remember that Pete Best was a fine drummer, but he wasn't recruited because of his talent. He was recruited out of pure necessity. Now, what actually happened when Pete Best was fired is kind of unknown. The Beatles themselves, possibly in a bit of revisionism, say that producer George Martin, who they auditioned for, and who we'll talk about next episode, recommended that they fire Pete Best. I think that's a small part of the story, but most evidence points to them just liking Ringo better. I mean, Ringo was a better drummer, and he just fit in with the Beatles' personalities a little more. Pete Best was more quiet and restrained, and the Beatles were mischievous and witty. After long nights of gigging, Best would just go home, and Ringo would find himself partying with John, Paul, and George into the early morning. George was particularly adamant that Ringo join the group. He just didn't want to play with Pete anymore, especially if Ringo was an option. John and Paul were not too hard to convince. John said of the incidents, quote, We were always going to dump him when we could find a decent drummer, unquote. Whatever the real reason, the band convinced Brian to fire Pete Best. Brian Epstein was a little hesitant to do it, but he ended up doing it and hiring Ringo Starr days after. Now, this is admittedly horrible timing for Pete Best. The Beatles are huge in their hometown, and Beatlemania is just around the corner. After slugging it with the band in Hamburg for two years, this is how they treat him? But Ringo was just a better Beatle. George would often say that Ringo was always the Beatles' drummer. He just didn't appear in the film until that moment. John, Paul, George, and Ringo played their first show as the Beatles at the Cavern just days after they fired Pete. And at first, Ringo was treated with some resistance. News of Pete Best firing was not welcome with all the Beatles fans. News of Pete Best's firing was not welcomed by the Pete fans, many of them girls who thought Pete was the best looking in the band. Pete's firing was also met with conspiracy theories. People said that John, Paul, and George were jealous of Pete, and that they just wanted him out because he was the real talent in the group. At one point, a fan came backstage and punched George in the face, blaming him for firing Pete. George had a black eye for days. People quickly forgot about Pete, though, because Ringo was such a good drummer, and he was a way more talented performer. The Beatles had a new look, new management, and a new drummer. Little did they know, soon the whole world would be talking about John, Paul, George, and Ringo. The Beatles. Thanks so much for listening to Rock Band's podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us at Rock Band's podcast for updates and share us with your rock and roll loving friends. I'll see you all here next week for part two.